going to be looking at a passage in the book of Exodus, uh, starting in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. A little bit of context. We've got Moses, who has led the people of Israel. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. He's taken them through the Red Sea. Pharaoh and all his uh, people, all of his army have been destroyed. They've now entered into this place called the desert, the wilderness, whatever it may be, and we begin our story. Chapter 16, verse 1. Follow along if it's easier for you to close your eyes and just listen, whatever it is. Whatever distraction that's in front of you, go ahead and get rid of it right now. You know you're looking at email or playing words with friends, just put it away. We're looking at the Word of God together. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam. And Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they, pre- when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you shall know what it is, what it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. Some of you, that's all you need to hear today. Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Are we there yet? Okay, so if I say that, where do you think you are? Typically, you're in a car, right, with your family. For us, it was a, um, a f- like a conversion van. So it had two front seats, it had two middle seats, and it had like a full-on couch that went onto a bed in the back. And then behind that was like a little closet, you know. It's the conversion van. And we, we drove across, you know, the, the western part of the United States and saw Yellowstone and Yosemite and Zion and Grand Canyon. And we did this big, long trip, a few of them, actually, as a kid growing up. And, and part of that, sort of that journey in the car was, um, there were lots of different parts. There was, um, it was really the price you had to pay to get to all these different, de- different destinations. Um, it used to be that we could stick our heads out the window and enjoy the, the scenery as you went by. And, and, and for some of us, if you were um, of my ilk, you, you um, dealt with things called, uh, this thing called motion sickness, which wasn't really pretty on a long road trip, right? 
Um, and so you wouldn't eat anything all day for fear of, you know, um, I, and somebody after the service in front of me said she, she brought back memories of her sitting in the front seat and her brother throwing up all over her head um, when she was 10 years old. And she was 70 and they stopped at a gas station and used a particular type of shampoo. And to this day, she smells that shampoo and feels sick to her stomach based on that sort of part of that journey. This will all fit into an actual part of the message, I promise. Uh, and, and, and in that, there were actually, there were some cool things that took place in the car as well. There were some meaningful conversations. And in, in, you know, today's time, what happens is everybody puts on their own sort of, you know, uh, devices and they watch their own DVD program or they kind of go off into their little universes. But back in the day, there wasn't that kind of uh, technology. And so you had conversations in the car and you learned about what people were going through and you, you learned the kinds of music that your parents listened to. I, I got exposed to the, to the Bee Gees. I got exposed to Fleetwood Mac and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Beatles, and all sorts of other great music based on those long car trips where we had cassette tapes that went into the car and we listened to those things. My brother and I fought. Yes, we fought. Two of you need to pay attention to this part of it, right? We'd sit in the back and we'd both be on the couch and you'd say, this is my side of the couch. Don't come on my side. It's my side. Don't come on my side. It's my side. Don't do this. And they would be up in the front and thankfully they were far enough in a van that they couldn't hear us very well. So that was a good thing. And we slept and there was this whole communal experience and, uh, you know, it's the trip on the way there and, and we still hear today, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Most of our car trips last a few hours. Some of us take car trips that last a few days, maybe a few weeks. But what would it be if your road trip lasted 40 years? 40 years to get to your final destination. We as the people of God put a lot of focus on the promised land, and as we should, but the travel to the promised land can draw us closer to God, which brings us to the text we're at. This passage is just the beginning of the time that the Israelites are spending in the desert, for I've already told you what takes place before that, but understand that Exodus 16 and going forward, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all them in the desert. So there's a long period of time. There's 40 years while they're in the desert. What are the observations that we can make about the desert? We understand that that it's not just a literal desert that they're in, but for us, it becomes a much bigger illustration for the deserts of our lives. And what kind of observations can we make then from there? We understand that the desert is not our final destination. Some of us need to hear that really clearly. The desert you're in is not the final destination. It's on the way to someplace else. It's on the way to something greater. The desert is a necessary part of the journey. It's necessary in order that it might strengthen us, it might mature us, and so that we're ready for when we get to the promised land, we know what that's all about. We understand that it's not forever that you're going to be in this desert place. Interesting thing happens here in the scriptures. You'll see that there's complaining that takes place. And we really have to distinguish, I think, between two different kinds of complaining. Because the kind of complaining that you're typically used to, which takes place on Twitter and Facebook and text message and everything else, is the... I wish they did this. I wish they did that. That's complaining about stuff to other people, right? And then there's this other kind of complaining, which I think God is open to. Complain to him. Look at the scriptures. Look at the Psalms. How long, God, how long are you going to have me in this place? 
When is this going to be finished? When do I get to be in the place that you told me I was going to be? Complaining about God and complaining to God are very different things. This time in the desert is a time of preparation. It's a time of getting us ready for what's to come. The desert is either a place that you survive and you grow stronger and you learn to thrive, or it's a place that you go and shrivel up and die. That's observations about the desert. So if, uh, what do we tend to do in the desert as revealed by what the Israelites do here? What, what do we tend to do once we're in the desert? What is our natural human tendency within the context of the desert? What is our natural reaction to that? You, I think we do a couple of things. I think here we, we looked at they, in verse 3, right off the bat, they, they go back and say, I wish we were back in Egypt. Yes, I wish that I was still a slave. I wish that I was back in that place of where other people oppressed me and whipped me and didn't treat me very nicely. I'd rather be in that than be in this place that is unpredictable because at least there I got a normal meal. At least there I kind of knew it was predictable. Here, there's nothing. We're in a desert. And in those places, we falsely remember the past and think we want to go back there. And in fact, I think that's probably not a good place for us to go. We've already sort of said that we get into this desert place and we complain. And we've gotten this to a whole science. Am I, not, am I not wrong here? You've been at work. You've been in your home. We are good complainers. We complain in the desert place. We expect that we can only last so long based on how much provisions that we have stored up for ourselves. You see, at the beginning of this passage, it talks about a particular day in which they started to complain. Why? Probably they figured out they could last about this long. We're going to bring along enough sort of supplies to get us to a certain point so that we'll last. And now what they brought in and of themselves is now gone. And they're like, we're in the desert. There's nothing we can do. We're going to starve to death. And what does God do? Well, he provides. We're going to see that in just a second. We get to what the end of what we already have, and then we have to figure out a way to depend on what God would do. And then the other thing that we do is I think there's a place here where Moses twice actually goes up, and he takes 40 days away, and he gets the Ten Commandments given to him. And during one of those periods of time when he goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, what takes place is that the people kind of freak out, and they're like, we don't have the guy who talks for God. Where did he go? We want something to touch and feel. We want something to tell us about. We want something to make us feel better about ourselves. And so what do they do? They get the whole golden calf thing going, and they worship that. And Moses comes back and goes, what did you do? During times in the desert, we many times tend to worship things that are not God. We tend to find things that that we fixate on, but they have nothing to do with God. And they actually draw our attention away from God in some ways. These are the kinds of things that we tend to do in the desert as revealed by our friends, the Israelites. What does God do in the desert? What does God do in the desert? Based on this scripture, it seems to me that God remains present. Exodus 13, 21 and 22, there's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There's a constant reminder that God is present in their midst. 
During this time in the desert, I think it's a time of instruction. We look at, you know, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those books, and we see that there's, they're, they're going to get the Ten Commandments, which are sort of, here's how to live your life, and they're going to get instructions for worship, and they're going to get instructions on being pure and rituals and how to live together in community. They're going to get a lot of that. And so during the time in the desert, God provides instruction to grow us, to mature us, to prepare us for what is to come. During this time in the desert, God provides for our basic needs. Here, in this particular passage, we see that it is manna. What is the literal translation of manna? What is it? No, no, literally, that's the literal translation of manna. They don't know what it is. They've never seen it before. It's nothing like it before. So the literal translation of manna is, what is it? Hey, I'm going to have some what is it this morning for breakfast. Would you like some as well? A little honey on it. It's great, you know. Oh, let's have some what is it. But there's a sense of like, you're going to cure our hunger. How are you going to do that? Well, we think it's going to be in a normal kind of way. You're going to put fruits and vegetables and that kind of thing. No, we're going to bring something out of the woodwork that we've never seen before, a thing called manna, and we're all going to go, what is it? And yet there's this thought that God provides exactly what we need when we need it. He gives it to them every day, our daily bread. And on Saturday... He gives them a double portion so that on Sunday they can have a day of rest so they're not having to gather the stuff up. And if they tried to store too much up, then what they would realize the next morning when the stuff that they stored up the day before was filled with maggots. Probably not something that you would, it's putrefied, it's nasty, it's gross. He gives them just enough to survive. But he is the one who provides. Not too much, not too little. Manna is what he brings. And in the desert, God listens. Verse 7 says, he heard and he responded. Chapter 32, they've done this horrible thing with the calf. God's ready to just kind of blow them all away. And Moses says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let let, let me me try to change your mind about this. This disaster that you're planning for them, please don't do that. And God changes his mind. In the desert, God listens. Okay, what's the significance of the number 40? Why why are we fixated on this number 40? Because there's 40 years here. There's 40 days for Noah with the flood. There's um, 40 days of uh, Jesus going to the desert for 40 days. Numbers are very significant. It's seen throughout. It represents a period of testing or judgment. The length of time necessary to accomplish something, some major part of God's plan. 40 is that number. In the case of 40 years, it represents the entire generation dying off. This is significant, I think. The old generation has to die off so that the new generation is who enters into the land. Do you see the significance of that for us, our time in the desert? There needs to be death of certain things in us that shouldn't be there. They're not about God, that are about us. They need to die off in order that we be prepared and matured and grown so that we are ready to go into the promised land that he has for us. Is that easy? No. Why would God do that? Because he loves us. Because he doesn't want to leave us in the state that we're in. He wants us to grow and mature and understand what it is to be loved by him. But by our very nature, we're rebellious and we don't like that. And so we do our own thing. So that's that number 40. The other one that's really interesting, which I'll allude to now and really return to later, is that it's 40 lashes is the maximum number of lashes allowed in the punishment of someone. 
you start to see the allusion to the future that Jesus takes on 40 lashes. He is the one who takes on the judgment because we could never take on that judgment ourselves. He is the one who takes on that judgment so that we might have life. He is the one who takes on that judgment so that we might know what it is to be in close communion with who God is. So what, we sh- what should we do in the desert? We've talked about the tendencies of the things that you normally would do as a human. What should we be doing in the desert? We should be drawing close to God. Yeah, pastor, that's what they all say. That's why we come to church. That's why we do these things. But it's really simple. Prayer. The psalmist help us understand that complaining done to God is healthy and beneficial. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in fierce prayer. We need to be down on our knees praying so that we would understand what it means to be in the presence of God. We don't do this well as Presbyterians. We don't usually actually do this very well as Western Christians. But I got to tell you, in this period of time, really the litmus test, I think, is probably prayer. I think it's time in the Word. It's time spent in, his, in, in the Gospels. It's time spent in the Scriptures. It's time understanding the promises of God so they so fill us, so that we so feel it, that in the midst of the darkness and desolation of where we are in this particular moment, we have hope that goes beyond reason, that takes us to think that it might get better. I think we have to understand silence, that silence in the desert is normal, and it doesn't necessarily mean that God isn't there. Some of you, that's all you need to hear today because you've felt like it's been silent for a very long time. That doesn't mean that God isn't there. I think we need to spend less time focusing on the question is, what did I do wrong? And more time on the question of, what does the Lord want me to do right? How did I end up in this place, God? Why, why am I here? What did I do wrong? Let's go back and super analyze all the different steps. The point of the fact is that you are where you are. Now what? And I think the question, the the title of the sermon potentially could have been, as we sort of talked about this in a a book that we're reading along with our children's and youth discipleship, was like, quit complaining, start praying. It actually was actually harsher than that, but we we made it nicer for for the, the audience that's here. So there you go. We need to focus on the promises of God. Look in the book of Joshua. That's right after they get out of the desert. They're going into the promised land, and he says very clearly, as you've heard it before, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because the pillars are gone. The pillar of light, the pillar of smoke are gone. And so he needs to tell them, look, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. We need to understand the importance of community and the limitations of community. Because in this particular passage, community is assumed. They live in the desert together, this whole bunch of people. We don't have that as an assumption within our particular culture. So there's parts of it that we try to do small groups and other things that you would understand what the benefits of community are. The problem is that in the midst of community, some of the worst complaining takes place, right? So we have to understand the benefits of it and try to steer away from the things that take away from God. The complaining, the whining, the moaning, the groaning. So we see this come out in different stories. We see it in the people of Israel who are in Egypt. They're taken out of Egypt. They're put in the desert. And now they're taken to the promised land. We can see that. We can see that in our own lives. You've seen the people in this room. You know the stories. They've been to hell and back. They've had cancer ruin their lives. They've had divorce ruin their lives. They've had relationships destroyed. They've had expectations of being married at this point, and they're not. They've had expectations that they would have this job at this particular not, and they're not. 
They've had expectations about what God would do if they just gave themselves and came out here and, and they would make it in the movie industry and they haven't. And we're in the desert and it's our own lives. And God says, what are you going to do when you're there? Well, we can look to the people of Israel and we can either do the stuff that takes us away from God or we can look to what God does for us and we can respond in kind. We can look at our own church and understand that for a period of time, Mark Brewer was here and he led and he did great things and then he left and here we are and we've got this vision of making LA the greatest city for Christ, but is that our vision? Was that his vision? And what are we doing? And there's not a pastor and where's the PNC? And how much longer until we get a pastor? And then when we get a pastor, it's all going to be better. No, it's not. We're going to still be the same dysfunctional people that we are right now. We're just going to have somebody up in front who has to take and have you get a chance to, you know, transfer all of that to that person, right? And so what we're pretty jacked up. What we need to figure out is we need to be in this place of being fierce about our prayer. We need to be fierce about seeking the face of God. And regardless of whoever that Messiah is that's going to come and be the pastor, y'all need to get over the fact he's not going to be Jesus. And even if he was, I think you'd be disappointed because all the expectations you're going to put on that person will never come true. They're never going to come true and you need to be prepared for that. Because our, this is the time we're in the desert, and this is the time when we get tested, and this is where we time figure out what we are as a people. Are we the people of God? Are we dependent on somebody else to lead us and guide us and spoon feed us? Or do we get up off our butts and start to read our Bibles and get down on our knees in prayer and come to figure out who God is? If you're in, you're in. If you're not, then go someplace else. We need the seats. Wow, I took more time than I should, and I guess that's the reason that was just all sitting there. Um, so that's our church. <laughs> that's our church. We love... Do you realize that I'm passionate? I'm not being... I'm not trying to put some sort of damnation on you. I'm saying I need to be passionate about it. You need to, we need to be passionate about our church, and not just this church, the church, the big church. Do you understand that the church calendar, what's going to happen next week is we're going to enter into Lent. We take 40 days. And what do we do during those 40 days? We prepare ourselves. So when you leave, take a Lenten devotional and read it every day. It will guide you. And we'll all be guided by the same word. And we'll all be reading and praying the same sort of things. And God can do some cool things when we all do that together. You're supposed to be in a small group. So then what would happen in a small group over the next seven weeks is that you would study the scriptures and you would study the scriptures and the guy in front would preach about it and they would all start to make sense and it would all be this message that would blow our mind and bring us close to what God would want us to be doing. What's the conclusion? How will you respond to the desert moments in your life, in the life of the church? Here's where we make it all make sense, right? Jesus goes into the desert 40 days, comes out, the devil tempts him with three different ways, and God, Jesus responds each time with the word of God. What does he experience when he's there? He, res- he experiences hunger. What do the people in Israel experience? They experience hunger. What is he tempted with? He's tempted to like significance and some other things over here. The people in Israel are tempted with those things as well. What's the difference? The people in Israel, they blow it. Jesus is perfect. He gets through the desert unscathed, not of his own, but because the Father is with him and sustains him and gives him strength. So we understand that we can't do it on our own. We only can do it by the power of Jesus, who was tempted in the desert and overcame all the temptations. He's been there. He's done that. He's lived through it. He knows what you're going through. He knows what we're going through. That's who we need to be fixated and focused on 
as we move forward in our lives in the desert. Let us pray. God, through the life of your Son, we know that you know what it is like to live in the deserts of life. As we travel through the deserts as individuals, as the community of faith, will you lead us by your Spirit in ways where we can grow in our faith and grow closer to you. For those who don't necessarily know you, may they find Jesus as the source of healing and direction in their lives. Even now, would they come after the service and talk to someone on the prayer team about what it means to have Jesus Christ lead them through the deserts of life. For those who feel as though they have been abandoned in this desert, would you give them a sign of your steadfast love? For those who are going through the desert and are holding on by a string, provide manna. And when they ask, what is it? May you remind them that it is you that is their provider. As the people of Israel remember your faithfulness, they assembled and around the Passover feast and proclaimed the sovereignty and goodness of God. As we take this communion feast and eat it together as your chosen people, may we be reminded that even when we are in the desert, in the in-between times, you are our God and you are with us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen.